0: You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to
1: spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation, the financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode.
0: Good morning, good evening uh, to everyone around the world, governors, deputy governors, heads of agencies, distinguished guests. Welcome to this time, the session on COVID-19, supervising the new normal and implications for stable coins, financial inclusion, financial stability. Under the circumstances, I wish you good health to you and your family. I am Baba Sude, CEO of Toronto Centre. And I think most of you know about the Toronto Centre, so I'm going to uh, save some time and not uh, uh, introduce us. These are unprecedented time. As Professor Carmen Reinhardt recently said in her speech, this time truly is different. For policymakers, this is a whatever-it-takes moment for large-scale, outside-the-box fiscal and monetary policies. Recent stablecoin initiatives have highlighted the shortcomings in cross-border payments and access to transaction accounts, and the importance of improving access to financial services, especially for the 1.7 billion people who are globally underbanked. In fact, the 2019 G7 presidency added stablecoin to its agenda in order to examine the risks and opportunities. Remains to be seen whether these will be indeed uh, some solution to the problems we're looking for. Today, we are very fortunate to have such a high caliber uh, speakers and moderators you have all seen their bios, and most of you know them already. I noticed that we have about 50 countries represented, more than 430 participants. I want to just point out that uh, Ceyla Spayoglu is a member of Toronto Centre's Board of Directors, so is Aditya. And uh, Tobias is a frequent contributor to our forums. Aditya may not know this, but we have trademarked him as one of our key marquee uh, moderators, and, <laughs> and so we're very grateful to that. It is my privilege, as I'm past, before I pass the um, floor to Aditya, to thank our major sponsors, Global Affairs Canada, Swedish CETA, IMF, Jersey Overseas Aid, and Comic Relief for supporting our mission. Also, I want to make sure that uh, you all use the Q&A function and submit your questions to Aditya, because he's committed to make sure that as many questions uh, can be addressed as possible. And also want to thank Demet Janakcha and my team who've done such a superb job of organizing this and other events. And Aditya, without further ado, my great thanks to you and the panelists. I'm just going to pass it to you now. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Babak, and good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everybody. Extraordinary times call for extraordinary panels, and I'm delighted to be moderating this panel of thought leaders on the complex intersection of topics covering financial stability, financial access, and financial technology. As an aside, we are all getting used to remote working uh, techniques, so let me apologize in advance for any glitches that I may cause directly or indirectly in the course of this conversation. But coming back to the topic, to better provide context to the discussions, we have divided our session into two parts. In the first part, we will cover the implications of the COVID-19 health crisis for the global economy and the financial system and the policy response. And in the second part, we will drill down to the potential of digital payments in general and stable coins in particular to facilitate commerce and finance in the new world. And just so that we are all on the same page, uh, we will use the the definition of stable coins as put forward by the uh, Financial Stability Board in their most recent report. That a stable coin is a crypto asset that aims to maintain a stable value relative to a specified asset or a pool of a basket of assets. A stable coin arrangement is one that combines a range of functions to provide an instrument that purports to be used as a means of payment and or a store of value. And finally, a global stable coin is one with the potential reach and adoption across multiple jurisdictions and the potential to achieve substantial volume. Now for the first round, the policy assessments and responses to the COVID-19, let me first turn to Tobias Adrian, Financial Counselor to the IMF and Director of the Monetary and Capital Markets Department to tee up the subject. Tobias, you lead the IMF's assessment of global financial stability in good times and in bad, and play a key role in shaping the financial policy advice that the fund provides to its members. Help us understand what is going on as we face this extraordinary uncertainty about the depth, spread, severity, and duration of this COVID-19 crisis. How do you see it impacting the global economy? The managing director, you will recall, said in the plenary remarks yesterday at the spring meetings that exceptional times call for exceptional responses. How are the member jurisdictions tackling this unprecedented crisis and how do you view these responses?
2: Yeah, thanks, um, thanks Babak, uh, thanks Toronto Center for having me in this uh, wonderful panel. These are extraordinary times and they're extraordinarily challenging and sad. There are hundreds of thousands of people that are already sick and the pandemic has continued to spread. This is, first of all, a medical crisis and the first order uh, policy response has to be a lockdown. The lockdown in turn is generating an economic crisis. Uh, Both demand and supply is collapsing around the world. So our forecast just three months ago for growth in 2020 globally was above 3% and it has shifted to now being negative 3%. So it's a six percentage point shift in our baseline for 2020. And when you look at the downside risk, so uh, we are looking at downside risk as, as the fifth percentile of the global growth distribution that has shifted from a positive 2% to a negative 8%. So 10 percentage point downward shift in downside risks. So uh, that uh, is driven by the huge amount of uncertainty that is, is currently uh, uh, in the world. And of course, uh, equity implied volatility, for example, as measured by the VIX, which is often used as an indicator of global risk aversion. Uh, you know, The VIX has been as high as during the global financial crisis. So uh, this is a historically uh, stressed period also in financial markets. Now, some sectors Uh, across the global economy have sold off as much as 2008. Uh, For example, uh, airlines, tourism, uh, restaurants, entertainment are all hit as badly as in 2008 already. Uh, In general, the sell off was not as much uh, for three reasons. So number one, it is first of all, a medical crisis and economic crisis. It's not a financial crisis that is originating in the financial system. But of course, the financial system is a threat of a financial crisis. Uh, Secondly, uh, policy measures have been put into place very rapidly and very aggressively around the world. So we estimate that fiscal policy is about 10% of global GDP, or $8 trillion. These are fiscal measures uh, that are consisting primarily of transfers, to corporations and to households in order to make sure uh, that cash flows are not uh, collapsing entirely. And the monetary policy response has been extremely aggressive as well, both in advanced economies and in emerging markets. You know, many central banks around the world have cut interest rates, have started asset purchase programs, have injected liquidity aggressively, and have backstopped uh, certain sectors such as corporate bonds, uh, in, 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 in terms of uh, backstop facilities. Banks, of course, are better capitalized than in the 2008 crisis. So the benefits of 10 years of tighter regulation and regulatory reforms are paying off now. We're going into the crisis with more capital and more liquidity in the banking system around the world in pretty much every country. And so these capital and liquidity buffers are there to be used now. And uh, this is indeed what we're seeing. Uh, when you look at bank earnings announcements, uh, they show that uh, provisioning is going up sharply because of course, this crisis is expected to lead to a wave of defaults. Defaults in the corporate sector, in the household sector, and uh, distress in some countries. And this brings me to emerging markets. Uh, we have already seen uh, uh, you know, record outflows in, term of, in terms of capital flows, uh, portfolio flows from emerging markets. And that has been pretty broadly across markets. Of course, there's differentiation across countries, uh, but uh, pretty much uh, all the emerging markets and low income countries have, have, have been subject to large outflows. And uh, of course, emerging markets uh, don't always have as much policy space as the advanced economies for either fiscal or monetary action. So that's where uh, institutions like the IMF or the World Bank come in. Uh, The IMF has a a trillion dollar balance sheet that is uh, deployed aggressively. We have over 100 requests for assistance. right? So out of 190 member countries, more than 100, more than half of our membership has already come to us and uh, and asked for assistance. Indeed, uh, earlier this week, we have announced that for the poorest countries, uh, that have already programs. Uh, there is a, 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 a debt uh, uh, moratorium uh, for about 25 countries, um, and uh, we are working actively on uh, on new types of programs. Uh, so we announced on Wednesday uh, a new liquidity line uh, that is going to be available for some of the more stable emerging markets. So with that, uh, let me let me turn back to Aditya.
1: Thank you, Tobias. Uh, and sticking to the theme of extraordinary, Jayla, you've had extraordinary firsthand experience of dealing with several <laughs> economic and financial crises in your career at the fund and the bank, and also in a national authority. And this covers emerging markets, low income countries, and advanced economies. So, how different is this? What can policymakers in general and the World Bank group in particular do to support the financial sector in the wake of the COVID 19 outbreak?
3: Thank you, thank you, Aditya, and uh, thank you, Babak Toronto Center, and greetings to all. I hope uh, everyone is keeping safe. Aditya, this is um, a crisis that, uh, like no other, I have not seen this in close to 30 years of my career. It's a human tsunami. Uh, Like Tobias said, it's unprecedented, both in terms of lives and livelihoods. It's particularly challenging for the developing economies that we work with, as most of them do not have the monetary and fiscal space to deal with this crisis and the ability to put uh, billions of dollars uh, to protect their um, uh, countries. They have very fragile health systems. Social distancing becomes impossible when you are living in crowded slums, and uh, and if you you're making your living in the informal sector and when you don't have any protection or social safety net to disturbance or to the shocks to the income. So the impact on the developing economies, especially the poorer ones, translate directly into increasing poverty. And that's why at the World Bank Group, we have mobilized uh, very quickly. We have a fast track facility to deal with the health implications of this crisis, working with other multilateral development banks to help countries um, with systems, with ventilators, with procurement initiatives, and uh, working very closely with WHO and others. So that's... um, uh, a very concrete uh, fast track facility that we have put in place in uh, almost in record time and um, uh, so far 64 de- developing countries are um, have uh, uh, been uh, implementing these measures and we hope to extend this to 100 countries by the end of april as um, as uh, Tobias also said, the collapse in economic activity, the supply and demand shocks, the um, commodity prices, the sudden stop in uh, capital flows, remittances, and the movements in goods and services are all impacting households and corporates, especially in the informal sector and the MSMEs. So that social and economic impact of this um, health crisis is going to be also, has been and will be um, very important and quite uh, devastating for some of the countries. So we put in place uh, almost 160 billion for over the next 15 months to um, address the health, economic and social shocks that many of these countries are facing. So we will um, assess needs and prior- prioritize the poorest countries, those with a high risk and low capacity and those in fragile and conflict settings with a goal to protect the poorest and most vulnerable households, protects jobs and businesses, shorten the time to recovery and support an economic recovery that is sustainable going forward. For the financial sector, the policy responses to date has mainly focused on providing markets uh, and funding liquidity and supporting affected borrowers and providing regulatory flexibility, with the key objective to preserve the functioning of core financial markets, financial sector resilience, so that the financial sector can continue to intermediate and provide credit to, much needed credit to businesses and households, because this is a time of um, immense uh, need as uh, so that liquidity problems do not turn into insolvency, into solvency problems. But I want to remind everyone that we started this crisis with already record high levels, both in terms of um, households, both in terms of uh, sovereigns as well as um, corporates in many of the developing economies. So it is very important that whatever measures are taken are done in a transparent manner with sunset clauses and clear risk sharing arrangements, because I worry that we end up with a financial crisis after uh, as we try to deal with the, um, economic consequences of this crisis. I'll stop here.
1: Thank you, Jayla. And thank you, Jayla and Tobias, for laying out this uh, this perspective from the from the IFIs. And in fact, one of our first questions is about how the IMF and World Bank will work together. And we'll come to that. But I'm giving you a heads up so you can start thinking about this. But let me now turn to Dietrich. Dietrich the Financial Stability Board was set up in response to the global financial crisis. And just when it was finishing on its reform agenda from the, from that crisis, and possibly hoping to take a short break, uh, it instead is faced with having to double up and deal with this one. In the very short time that has elapsed, how is the FSB responding to these issues? And what assessment has the FSB made of the evolving financial stability vulnerabilities posed by the COVID-19? Th-
4: thank you, Aditya, and, and, and thank you, for for inviting me to this uh, distinguished panel. Um, Tobias and Sheila have already used superlatives to describe the the impact of um, of COVID-19, and I'm going to to add another one from a financial stability perspective, which is that COVID-19 represents the biggest test of the post-crisis financial system to date, and uh, the pandemic constitutes um, an unprecedented global macroeconomic shock, a shock that is pushing the global economy into a recession of uncertain magnitude and duration and the shock that has placed the financial system under strain. And here it's the downward revisions of expected economic activity and heightened risk aversion that have led to a major repricing and repositioning of global financial markets. And that has involved, um, as many um, um, of the people listening to to this panel today know very well, uh, significant large capital outflows from from emerging market economies. I would describe the challenge that the global financial system faces as as a dual challenge on the one hand of sustaining the flow of credit amongst declining growth and and increasing solvency risk on the one hand and um, uh, uh, managing heightened financial risks on the other hand. And as a result, the demands on the financial system's capital and liquidity have risen. And this, I think, was very visible in the... Dash for Cash uh, episode in March, which triggered decisive and large-scale central bank intervention. Now, the positive news, um, Tobias mentioned already, is that the global financial system is more resilient and better placed to sustain uh, financing to the real economy as a result of the G20 regulatory reforms coordinated by the FSB in the aftermath of the 2008 global financial crisis. And in particular here, it's the greater resilience of major banks at the core of the financial system, which has allowed the system today largely to absorb, rather than amplify, the current macroeconomic shock. But maintaining this resilience requires further efforts, individually and collectively. And the FSB is working on on three fronts, to maintain financial stability and sustain the flow uh, of financing to support growth. Let me briefly talk about each of these three areas. First, the FSB is exchanging information daily on policy actions taken by our members in response to COVID-19. We are sharing these daily updates with the 70 countries that are in our uh, regional consultative groups, which include many emerging market and developing countries. Now, this broad sharing of information is helping jurisdictions to respond quickly and consistently. And in the coming weeks and months, um, it will become increasingly important to assess the impact of, of the measures taken, um, compare notes on effectiveness, and um, in the end, identify what, what is working best. Second, we are providing risk assessments to inform policy discussions. And a um, first stage of this risk assessment work has focused on four critical nodes in the global financial system. These notes comprise, first, the ability of the financial system to finance businesses and households, the ability, second, of market participants to obtain US dollar funding, um, not least in, in emerging markets, um, third, the ability of non-bank financial intermediaries to meet liquidity demands, and finally, the ability of market participants to effectively manage um, the increasing counterparty risks. Um, in the next stage, the FSB will be working to identify and assess the specific vulnerabilities that uh, may materialize during this major global uh, economic downturn in the, in the coming months. And uh, one important issue in this regard is the implications of rapidly growing solvency risks. Third, we are working with our membership and the international standard setting bodies to coordinate global policy responses. And uh, FSB member jurisdictions have taken strong and decisive, decisive action in response to COVID-19. These actions have obviously been tailored to individual needs, but they have been underpinned by common principles that the authorities will continue to follow in future to support the real economy, maintain financial stability, and minimize the risk of market fragmentation. And under these principles, authorities will First, monitor and share information on a timely basis to assess and address financial stability risks from COVID-19. Recognize and use the flexibility built into existing financial standards to support policy responses, to be as was referring to the fact that it's time to use buffers. Third, seek opportunities to temporarily reduce operational burdens from firms and authorities. Fourth, act consistently with international standards and not roll back reforms or compromise the underlying objectives of existing international standards, for important, and finally coordinate the future timely unwinding of the temporary measures taken. So these are the principles that will guide work going forward. And the G20 finance ministers and central bank governors endorsed these principles in their communique earlier this week. I'll stop here.
1: Thank you, Dietrich, and uh, it's very helpful to hear the message. Of, uh, you ended on the message of international cooperation and coordination, which is probably very much the need of the need of the hour. And now I'm going to start uh, moving down from the 30,000 feet level where we've talked about placing these discussions in context to a little bit more on the issue of innovation and technology. And I'm going to turn to my old colleague, Ross Leko. And Ross, when you left the IMF to join the BIS Innovation Hub, The fund lost a key resource on all fintech-related issues, but we were reconciled to the fact that this was all for the global good. So we are very keen to hear about the Innovation Hub, its mandate, and more specifically, how its work will contribute to the global response to the pandemic. In your remarks, could you also share with us what the PIS is doing more generally to respond to COVID-19? Thanks.
5: Well, thank you very much, Aditya. First of all, let me say what a pleasure it is to be on a panel with such great friends and, and former fun colleagues. And I'd like to thank the Toronto Centre for inviting me to participate. Um, maybe I'll start with the Innovation Hub itself and the work that we're doing um, in this area. And you know, I should maybe share with you all that the BIS Innovation Hub is a new uh, initiative of the, of the BIS. Its establishment was announced uh, last June by the BIS. And we're now at the point where we've actually commenced operations. It's uh, based at BIS headquarters in Basel, but with uh, three regional centers in Switzerland, Hong Kong and Singapore, each opened in collaboration with the host central bank in that jurisdiction. Uh, And we plan to expand to new centers. Uh, The innovation hub has a a threefold mandate. First of all, to do research around and identify critical trends in financial technology of, of interest to central banks. Secondly, to uh, establish and foster a network of uh, central bank experts uh, on innovation. And thirdly, to explore the development of new products that make use of new technologies that can actually serve to improve the functioning of the global financial system and that can be shared as global public goods with the central banking community. Uh, The hub is uh, headed by Benoit Corré and he's leading a, a multidisciplinary team of uh, technologists, lawyers, um, economists, and, and, and regulators. And the team, I should say, is, is growing, uh, growing very quickly. The, um, the range of projects that we're going to be working on initially uh, are quite broad based and they deal with different subject areas and technologies, including the development of a regtech subtech platform in Singapore. Uh, the use of distributed ledger technology in the context of trade finance in Hong Kong and security settlement in Switzerland, and also the uh, use of digital identity as a foundational infrastructure for the provision of financial services in Singapore. You know, while these projects don't uh, address COVID 19 per se, or specifically COVID 19, I think it's important to remember that the work of the hub. Um, is focused on helping to define the future of the global financial landscape and to help to realize that vision. And I think one thing this crisis has demonstrated is the importance of new technologies to allow us to function in a world of social distancing, including, I think, society generally, but also in the financial system. And I think that the, the crisis may therefore have a lasting impact on the shape of the global financial system and may accelerate trends, uh, particularly in digitization. Uh, in such areas as banking, domestic and cross-border payments, uh, identity, and regulation and supervision. And uh, we, the hub is, is um, really focused on trying to help identify and, and facilitate these trends. More generally, uh, the BIS is taking a number of steps to help the international community respond to uh, COVID-19. And I'll just mention a few points. First of all, we're continuing to provide financial services to the central banking community, notwithstanding the the challenges of remote working and social distancing. Uh, We continue to serve as a preeminent forum for consultation and cooperation between central banks. The regular meetings that we hold that draw together the governors governors of major central banks uh, are continuing to function, albeit in a a virtual format. And we're generating research that examines the implications of uh, the pandemic for the global economy, financial markets, and regulation and supervision. And you can actually find much of this research in two new uh, periodical publications that we've just launched. They're called FSI Briefs. And BIS bulletins uh, BIS bulletins are short topical notes that provide insights into current events in banking markets and the larger economy and FSI briefs are shorter notes that uh, short notes rather that look at regulatory and supervisory subjects of topical interest and if you look at these these new publications you'll see a lot of attention being devoted to the pandemic. Um, one uh, article that I think is of particular interest which was published by three uh, BIS colleagues, um, Raphael Auer, John Frost, and Grillo Corneli, um, looks at COVID-19 cash and the future of payments. And it examines how the pandemic has really sparked public concerns on the uh, potential for um, physical banknotes in particular to actually transmit the virus. And uh, I think it shows that scientific evidence is, is demonstrating that this, risk is actually low uh, compared to other forms of payments, including credit cards. Uh, and that um, to bolster trust in cash, uh, some central banks are actually actively um, urging continued acceptance of banknotes and coins, while others are um, um, either sterilizing or quarantining banknotes. But in terms of the, the, the road ahead, perhaps after the crisis and, and what this may mean, I think there is a possibility that uh, this may actually spur greater interest in digital currencies, whether it be private or public, um, with uh, associated implications. Maybe I'll stop there.
1: Thank you, Ross. Um, So uh, thank you for providing that segue into the next round of our discussions. and, and, And what have we learned so far? We've learned that the real economy is under great strain. The financial system is uh, currently resilient, but there are already pockets of vulnerabilities in uh, some emerging markets and developing countries who don't have the space to respond with the, uh, the policy measures that the other countries are being able to take. That international coordination and cooperation is essential to enable the global financial system to continue to respond in a manner that uh, allows for the continuation of the uh, the post-crisis uh, reform agenda to be uh, to 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 remain as the basis of our work going forward. And But all of this also means is that the, the financial system has to be prepared to transform in many ways, particularly the transactional ways. And Ross pointed to how already many changes are. It, it, is, it is forcing us to think about what the new world might look like. So with that, let me move to the second round of our discussion. And uh, let me get back to Tobias. Tobias, you've done a lot of thinking on the broader policy implications of financial innovation. And you've written extensively on stable coins and digital currencies as well. You're a member of the G7 stablecoins working group which has been very emphatic that no global stablecoin project should begin unless the legal regulatory and oversight challenges have been adequately addressed I know that the other speakers will cover some of these issues uh, in, in more with more specifics but could you lay the ground for us by taking us through whether payment innovations, particularly stable coins, have had any major impact on payment and transactional ecosystem yet? Also, particularly vexing issue is that of cross-border payments, which continue to be costly and difficult, despite a multitude of projects aimed at addressing this. Can we hope to see any improvements? What is the role of the IMF in all of
2: this? Yeah, thank you. Uh, Thank you, Aditya, for uh, switching to the fintech topic. Um, I think we are in a time of technological revolution in the payment space. And over the next five years or so, we will certainly see uh, a vastly different payments landscape uh, both nationally and internationally. Um, I, you know, there are four dimensions to think about. So one is the emergence of stable coins. And of course, there are many single currency stable coins already. Uh, There are also multi-currency baskets that are being planned and it might be that uh, the introduction of stablecoins will have a first-order impact on uh, international transactions. Secondly, many countries around the world are exploring to link up their RTGSs, their real-time gross settlement systems, directly. And RTGSs themselves are undergoing a technological revolution. So many countries are updating their payment systems uh, nationally, and uh, at the same time, are working on ways to linking up uh, those payment systems. Uh, So that might not work for all countries around the world, but for many countries. Uh, Thirdly, of course, the correspondent banking system. The correspondent banking system is quite antiquated. when i uh, when anybody does an international transaction today, there's typically your bank here, the correspondent the, the correspondent bank of your bank, the correspondent bank of the receiving bank, and the receiving bank. so there are four banks in a chain, and every single bank has transaction costs, has uh, compliance costs, has to do AML CFT checks, and so it's very inefficient and very. Uh, very uh, costly. And so there's a huge opportunity to update the correspondent banking system, and indeed there are uh, major efforts underway, in particular in the area of remittance payments, to just you know, come up with uh, technologically and legally much more efficient and better systems. Um, and uh, fourth, uh, of course, there could also be uh, some degree of uh, more centralized uh, global payment systems, um, and uh, so um, you know that that is further down the road, perhaps. But it's uh, it's something where uh, some people are certainly putting some effort in. So there are really four complementary avenues where technology. Uh, is already impacting payments and is going to impact payments uh, much more dramatically going forward. Now in terms of central bank digital currencies, um, you know there are pilots in many countries and uh, this particular crisis might accelerate the motivation and the speed with which central bank digital currencies are rolled out. And If uh, there are uh, many countries uh, that are adopting central bank digital currencies, that in and of itself will have implications for cross-border payments as well. So let me stop here.
1: Thank you Tobias. Um, Let me now turn to Jayla. Jayla, you have led the World Bank's response on innovation and finance and supported many projects around the world which are aimed at facilitating transfers, payments and remittances. And you've also been involved in the uh, in the bank's response to the COVID-19 crisis. Could you elaborate a bit on the role of digital payments in the COVID-19 response and the broader implications for digital payments going forward?
3: Sure. Um, so as uh, Toby has also said, the crisis makes it very clear that digital payments are clearly um, part of the COVID-19 response. The lockdowns and social distancing are making use of uh, physical cash much more difficult banks have reduced their operating hours, physical agent locations used by mobile money users for cash in and cash out are also affected. This is critical for mobile money networks. We heard from several regulators that um, in some countries where the migrant workers are, they cannot send um, remittances abroad because they are not allowed to go out and and go to mobile money uh, operators and sometimes, uh, uh, go to, sorry, uh, money transmitters, and sometimes these offices are even closed, so that um, we, for um, workers that do not have access to digital payments through their phone or other means, it becomes very difficult to really um, uh, survive uh, during this crisis and help their uh, families who are in the, in their home countries. So this has been um, also linked with a general hesitation to handle cash uh, due to concerns in terms of potential transmission. So all of this is leading to a greater adoption of digital payments in countries by individuals and the governments by governments where the right services and infrastructure are available and I'd like to underline where the services and infrastructures are available as this is not the case unfortunately for many countries hence making it critical that we work on digital connectivity and prerequisites like digital ID and the regulatory legal frameworks that um, allow the safe uh, use of digital payment services and that I think is an urgent uh, priority. So, um, and to add to this, there are provisions, uh, provision of services like health, education and commerce that are being widely used through digital means and digital payments are critical, not only for accessing them, but also for the provision of these services as well as through um, E-Trade and other means which allow people to manage this crisis in a much better manner. So many countries, um, in many countries, governments are simplifying processes for financial service providers, existing social benefit transfers and social insurance payments recipients, new beneficiaries, and so on. The experience of Brazil is very impressive. The minister was quoting yesterday that within three weeks, they were able to digitize quote unquote 40 million people so I think uh, it's uh, of course not every country will be able to do this but it makes it very important that um, we work on getting more um, uh, helping countries as much as possible to switch into safe uh, digital payment systems So um, what are we doing at the World Bank to improve the safety, reliability, and efficiency of payment systems and financial market infrastructures? This is a big agenda, as you mentioned, provide uh, financial assistance as well as technical assistance to countries, policy advice. On legal foundations, um, payments infrastructure, and uh, regulatory supervisory issues, working with international standard setters like CPMI and so on, and disseminating this knowledge um, overall. And specifically, the support includes. Um, Dealing with regulatory challenges uh, to allow entry of new business models, there are a lot of concerns in terms of trust and in terms of being able to use like um, cloud services, which a lot of regulators are, are concerned about because most of the time these are cross-border and it's not clear that there would be business continuity. Uh, simplifying customer due diligence uh, requirements, interoperability of payment systems, which is really critical for Those to access uh, these services. And of course, um, shift to digital large volume payment systems like remittances, government to person payments, and public and private sector salary payments and bill payments. So these are. All the um, uh, work that we have been doing, of course, working very closely um, with uh, many others, partnering with many others on our big initiative ID4D, uh, ID4Development, as well as um, the um, foundations, the infrastructure, digital infrastructure, with our colleagues in our infrastructure groups to help countries to have these um, uh, possibilities. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jayla. Uh, I think both you and Tobias, you've laid out very clearly the imperative of uh, uh, moving towards systems which, are, uh, which, which will enable digital payments uh, uh, as, as also stores of value. And of course, stable coins are a key means of achieving both objectives. So that now brings me to Dietrich. Dietrich, yesterday, or no, day before yesterday, the FSB uh, published a landmark consultation report. And just as an aside, I was surfing some of the more geeky uh, fintech websites and the, immediately the big headlines were governments to ban all stable coins, which is precisely not what you intend, but is how it's being read in some senses. So obviously your concern is, uh, the FSB's concern is that when global systems, uh, stablecoin ecosystems could become systemically important, and therefore it's important to be able to ha- have, have them adapt to uh, adopt the appropriate regulatory framework. So. What are the actions that should be taken to address the regulatory and supervisory issues with global stablecoins?
4: So, um, th- thanks, thanks, Aditya for uh, for introducing this this second round of discussion, and um, uh, I think you, you mentioned the the reception that our consultative report has received in some more of, the, of the more tech oriented. Um, um, uh, parts of uh, of the world wide Web, and therefore I think it may be useful to put the discussion about um, regulatory and supervisory responses uh, to global stable coins into context and, and The first part of this context is um, the, the potential systemic importance uh, that, uh, that that stable coins may have. Um, the fact that they may become systemically important is, is, is one of the main reasons why the G20 mandated the FSB last year, last June, to examine regulatory issues. And uh, to advise actually on multilateral responses as a proper taking into account, and this is very important, and I'll come back to it later in more detail, the perspective of emerging market and, and developing economies. Um, so that's one part of the context. I'll come back to that in a minute. Another part of the context is, the broader debate about payment system efficiency that uh, that you introduced and that um, uh, Tobias and Sheila have already already talked about. And and, um, I think it's important to note, and our report is clear on that, that global stable coins have the potential to enhance the efficiency of the provision of financial services. And this argument is um, uh, probably even more important in in the current environment of social distancing, as as Loss mentioned. now, cross-border retail payments have remained relatively slow and expensive. This is an issue not just for emerging market, um, for emerging markets, but also for developing economies, but in particular for emerging markets, which face, for instance, the issue of high costs of, of remittances. Um, and uh, I would like to note in the passing that as part of this broader context, enhancing the efficiency of global cross-border payments is a priority on the international policy agenda the G20 presidency has passed the FSP to develop a roadmap for how to enhance cross-border payments and we published also last week as a first step towards the development of this roadmap an assessment of the current issues in payments, in international payments. So um, there's a lot of work going on. Um, and, and I think the discussion, as I said, about regulatory frameworks needs to be seen in this context. Now, coming back to the systemic question of systemic importance of global stablecoins. I think um, you can think of this as the the flip side of their potentially global use as means of payment and store of value. And more specifically, global stablecoins could pose financial stability risks um, through a number of channels. The first one is that if a global stablecoin were widely used as common store of value, then even a moderate fluctuation, variation in its value might cause significant changes in users' wealth and therefore trigger significant wealth effects. Second, if a global stablecoin is widely used for payments, any operational disruption might have significant impacts on economic activity and financial system functioning. And then third, the large scale use of global stablecoins might magnify any, any confidence effects related to Um, the the workings of the the stablecoin arrangements. Now, these effects might be of particular importance in emerging and developing economies where households may come to hold large portions of their wealth in global stablecoins rather than local currency instruments. So what could and should regulators do to reap the potential benefits of stablecoins while containing potential risk to financial stability? I mean, this is the essay question behind the consultative report that we published a few days ago. And again, the focus of our report is on regulatory and supervisory issues, not on the whole host of other questions that come with global stablecoins, for instance, about competition, taxation, and so on and so forth. Now, our consultative report includes 10 high-level recommendations to address the regulatory supervisory and oversight challenges faced by global stablecoins. I don't wanna go through the individual recommendations, but rather make a few quick points on the rationale, if you like the philosophy behind these recommendations. So three points. First, it is important to understand global stablecoins as an ecosystem. That's why we talk about global stablecoin arrangements. And these arrangements include activities that may span across Um, a range of financial uh, activities and um, uh, correspondingly banking, payment and security regulatory regimes. So range of functions, range of potentially relevant regulatory regimes. Second point, um, authorities agree on the need to apply supervisory oversight capabilities and practices under the principle of same business, same risk same rules. This is important for two reasons. One is obviously a level playing field argument. Another one is um, to put in place a regulatory framework that is capable to adapt to emerging business models and technologies employed by by stablecoin providers. And third, um, very important, some functions of global stablecoins may have um, very significant impacts cross borders. So taken together, there is a strong need for holistic approach to regulation, supervision, and oversight, and close international cooperation and information sharing. And I think these are the, if you like the, the underpinnings of the 10 principles. I'm happy to discuss them in more detail um, in, the, in the Q&A part. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, that our, our recommendations, if you like spell out 10 key elements of an approach that is based on these 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 underpinnings. Um, I'll stop
1: here. Looking forward to the Q&A part. Thank you, Dietrich. And and let me now turn to Ross. Ross, you mentioned the new world order, which is uh, going to be based around a digital economy. And uh, we, of course, we are the, uh, this world may well be one in which many different types of digital currencies may coexist including central bank digital currencies, cryptocurrencies, and stable coins. So from all the thinking that we've done, can you share with us what are some of the key legal challenges that lawyers will have to face in this brave new world? And in particular, what are the legal issues which are still remain with regard to the stable coins that uh, are uh, foremost in your mind?
5: Sure. Well, first of all, there are many challenges uh, that this brave new world is going to present for lawyers. And I think, given that that world is actually evolving, many of these challenges uh, will evolve. Now, generally speaking, uh, neither the law nor lawyers like uncertainty. It makes it difficult for uh, firms uh, to know what the rules are that they have to comply with. And secondly, what rules would apply as they structure their transactions. This basically complicates uh, life uh, for operations on many levels. And, you know, with the rise of digital currencies over the past few years, I think lawyers generally have had to advise clients in an environment of uncertainty where the rules may not be entirely clear. And of course the situation I think varies between jurisdiction where some countries are more advanced on, on resolving some of these issues than others. And I have to say that a huge amount of work has been done and is being done to try to clarify the legal rules uh, respecting digital currencies generally, but also I think stablecoin specifically. And this work I think can be divided into two broad areas of the law. The first is the public aspect of the law, the law of regulation. And the second is the private law aspect of the law, the law of commercial relations between private parties. I think it's not surprising that, you know, earlier on, much of the work was being focused on the first of these two buckets, particularly things like anti-money laundering for digital currencies. This was identified as an immediate concern that prompted, I think, a pretty swift response from FATF in trying to develop some standards and guidance for its members uh, around these issues. But I think work is now being done on both fronts, and and some progress is being made. But um, let me maybe share with you some of the principal issues that I think are relevant for digital currencies with particular relevance to, uh, to stable coins. And some of these issues, maybe starting with the law of regulation, I think Dietrich has already alluded to some of these, but you know, I think a lot of work is still being done to clarify which legal rules within a regulatory regime apply uh, and where the gaps may exist. And the basic questions is to what extent you know, a stable coin will constitute money or securities or a collective investment scheme or electronic money or potentially something else entirely? And which regulatory regimes would it fall into, potentially more than one? In what circumstances does a stablecoin regime constitute a payment system? Does the issuance of a stablecoin implicate banking law? To what regi- uh, extent are a stablecoin regimes subject to, uh, and the service providers involved in them, subject to anti-money laundering rules in a country? And of course, Which jurisdictions actually can assert jurisdiction over a stable coin? These are particularly global stable coins span multiple jurisdictions with different parts of the regime in different countries and different service providers and users in different countries. How do you reconcile all this from a legal perspective? But beyond these issues of regulation, there is a whole raft of private law issues that need to be addressed generally with respect to digital currencies, but I think the, the list really uh, grows with respect to stable coins. Many of these I think were identified in the G7 report on stable coins that was published last fall. And of course, different stable coin systems, given their different designs, may raise different legal issues. But I'll maybe just um, you know, mention a few of them. You know, First of all, you know, <laughs> what is a stable coin from a legal perspective? What are the rights of the, sta- the holder of a stable coin? And in particular, do they have a proprietary right over the stable coin or is it simply a contractual claim between the holder and the issuer of the stable coin? Now, what are the legal arrangements around the protection of the reserve uh, of assets underlying the value of the stable coin? What are the rights of a stable coin holder to actually redeem the stable coin or to liquidate it in what circumstances? How can ownership of a stablecoin be transferred between two parties? And I think particularly important, what are the rights of the holder in the event of an insolvency? Does it have a claim on the underlying assets uh, constituting the reserve, protecting the value of the stable coin? Or does it only have a general claim against the assets um, of the issuer of the stable coin? What is the governance structure around the initiative and how are decisions taken and finally, you know, what rights to rights uh, do um, holders have over their data when it's held by either the issuer, the stablecoin, or service providers? I think you know these are just a few of the issues that that arise, but I'm sure there are many others, and a lot of work needs to be done to resolve them. I'll stop there.
1: Thank you, Ross. Uh, uh, thank you, Ross. I think you've raised some very pertinent issues, which kind of help us to round off the discussion. Uh, starting from the as we as we began with the overall context and coming down to the issue of exactly uh, what are some of the challenges which uh, which, which have to be addressed before stablecoins can be seen as useful means of uh, payments and stores of values and provide the, the the solution to the many of the problems which are being faced uh, placed in the uh, faced in the area of uh, of payments and settlements so We've received some very interesting questions from the audience and uh, some of them, of course, are beyond the scope of the panel. They are very important and very relevant, but beyond the scope of the panel, for instance, how long do we think the lockdown might last? So I'll leave those out, but I'll I'll pick up those ones which have a little more uh, relevance to uh, direct relevance to the topic uh, today. Not that the others are not important, but those are be but those are one which we may not be able to contribute much to the body of knowledge. So let me start with the first question, uh, uh, and, and and feel free to respond to the other questions when the, when when your turn comes up. But Tobias, I'm going to go with you first. One of the questions we have is that the scale of this crisis is daunting, and you in uh, much of the damage could be long-term and structural. Or is it so? Or will we snap back very quickly once the vaccine and treatment are discovered?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, this is the crucial question of this crisis. Um, There is a a large amount of uncertainty around uh, the medical issues, right? Is there gonna be a vaccine? Is the virus going to retreat? Uh, is there going to be a reinfection once people go back to work? Um, could there be a reinfection in the fall or next year? I mean, these are all questions that are basic medical questions uh, that uh, we don't have a clear answer to yet. Or, or uh, is there going to be a treatment? So, is there going to be either a vaccine or or some other uh, treatments via via drugs? Right. I mean, all of these are are very unclear at this point, And that is one source of uncertainty. A second source of uncertainty is, now that you have these lockdowns, uh, to protect lives. I mean, this is what needs to be done. We need to protect lives. Um, what is going to be the economic implication? And uh, of course, this uh, generates a tremendous uh, amount of economic hardship. You know, people can't go to work anymore. Uh, Many, uh, a huge fraction of the population around the world has either no savings or very little savings. And uh, many around the world uh, live uh, from uh, their wages uh, to to their food, so to say. So uh, they might be facing extremely difficult times due to the lockdowns. Uh, And finally, of course, there's scarring, right? I mean, once you shut down the economy, you shut down businesses, you get people unemployed, this can have very long lasting and very persistent effects. So even if on the medical front, things go unexpectedly well, or somehow, you know, something, uh, you know, somehow this virus is retreating uh, more quickly than expected, you know, the economic implication might be fairly long lasting. So there's uncertainty about the magnitude and the timing. And then of course, there's the uncertainty about the financial sector, right? Because as we discussed, banks are well capitalized. They have a lot of liquidity. But if the most adverse scenarios realize, I mean, those, uh, when you look, for example, at the world economic outlook, when you look at the adverse scenarios, I mean, those are more severe than pretty much uh, any stress tests uh, that have been run, right? I mean, supervisors over the past decades thought that these adverse scenarios and the stress tests were really severe. And now suddenly we have a crisis where, you know, the baseline is about as severe as the supervisory scenarios, but where the adverse uh, scenario of relative to the current baseline is more severe than what most supervisors around the world have, have imagined. And so that is gonna be, another challenge. So there remains a large amount of uncertainty. And uh, this is where policy has to come in, right? I mean, this is precisely why institutions such as the IMF, the World Bank, um, the FSB, uh, the VIS were created. It's to coordinate policy, to provide firepower, to provide funding to countries that cannot receive funding anywhere else. And, um, you know, we have seen that to some extent countries have come together to do the right things. Within countries, policymakers have come together to do the right thing. And my suspicion is that we're going to need a lot more of that going forward, both on the international cooperation front in terms of taking dramatic actions, uh, and in terms of being courageous uh, to take a, a big policy steps. This is a crisis where you certainly want to hope for the best. I mean, perhaps things turn out better than we expect. And, you know, but we have to prepare for the worst. I mean, we, you know, we don't want to regret not taking the steps that should have been taken because it is costing lives. Uh, So we have to be aggressive. We have to be forceful on the medical front, on the fiscal front, on the monetary front, and of course in terms of what international organizations are doing.
1: Thank you, Tobis. And you covered with your response another question which had been raised, which was the one on the lives versus livelihood uh, discussion, and I think you made that very clear. Uh, the next question which we've received is a little bit more focused on stable coins, which is would the prevalence of stable coins weaken the power of monetary policy in targeting inflation and uh, Jayla, would you like to go on this before I bring it back to Tobias
3: go ahead why don't we ask Tobias to go and then okay. I'll go. perfect okay um so uh,
2: it It depends a little bit on the design of the stablecoins. So at the fund, we proposed uh, to have stablecoins phased into a regulatory framework of narrow banks. We call that synthetic CBDCs. So that would involve creating a special charter uh, where stablecoin issuers. Would acquire a very simple banking charter um, that would allow them to hold the reserves with the central bank. So that has the advantage that, first of all, uh, the stable coins would be within the regulated banking sector, you know, in a very simple fashion. So this would be these uh, synthetic CBDC uh, issuers would be very, very simple banks on the asset side they have central bank reserves. On the liability side, they have CBDCs, that's it. And those uh, synthetic CBDCs could be operated out of banks, out of fintech companies, out of telecom companies. Uh, The AML-CFT issues would be resolved in exactly the same way as they're done in the banks because these would be simple banks. These would be very safe Organisms because they hold reserves with the central bank. So this is high-powered money. It's it's extremely safe, um, and you could at that point, uh, you know, it's it's within the monetary system. So you know how many reserves are corresponding to CBDCs, and uh, you uh, can in principle uh, do what uh, China does, which is whenever a CBDC is created reserves are drained on a one-to-one basis, right? So that you keep monetary control. Um, so I think this is one avenue to go. And um, this, it's, it's called synthetic CBDC because it's a two-tier system where, you know, it's private operators, either banks or, uh, or enterprises uh, 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 are running the, the, CB, the, the, the synthetic CBDC, which is a stable coin. Uh, and the central bank doesn't have to deal directly with the public, which has many problems. Uh, so AML, CFT would be done by that bank, uh, but it would have the safety of, uh, of an institution that is backed by reserves and that is regulated by bank regulators. So I think this uh, proposal of the synthetic CBDCs would address exactly the problem of monetary control. In fact, many countries around the world uh, are expressing interest pre- precisely because they worry that the global stablecoins can undermine monetary control, right? Dollarization is so much simpler once you have in, uh, you know, a, a well-known uh, uh, app that everybody uses, um, a, you know, billions of people that can transact across borders. And that can threaten monetary autonomy, right? Uh, You can have dollarization, you know, potentially very quickly. uh, And in particular, in this period of time where people don't use their homes, everything is done online. This push for dollarization uh, or, or stable colonization, so to say, could get very quick and could overwhelm uh, monetary systems, so what many countries saying is well, we want to lean against that by developing our own CBdc so that w- there is a digital currency in domestic uh, in domestic currency and of course uh, the countries where these digital assets have advanced the most are oftentimes emerging markets or developing countries so I think it is uh, entirely possible that uh, there will be an acceleration because stable coins are becoming more popular, but policymakers are also becoming more, pop- more, more aggressive in terms of their policy response because they are worrying about the monetary autonomy. In fact, the IMF is working on a paper for the G20, uh, for the July uh, G20 on exactly that issue.
1: for uh, outlining this. And I think you brought out the issue of why global stable coins or stable coins uh, can become systemic quickly, the point which, uh, which was being made earlier by Dietrich. So I'm gonna move now to Chela, but first I'll give you another Chela, a question for you, which is a, a twist to the financial inclusion issue, which is the question is experience so far indicates that sophisticated investors tend to corner these coins or their benefits. Doesn't this work against the objective of financial inclusion? Could you address this as well as if you have any follow up to the questions I asked Tobias? And I'll go around.
3: Okay, so um, two issues. One is um, the whole premise of. these um, innovations is to allow others to be able to access it and make it much less costly and efficient and effective and so on. So I think to the extent that, and, and many of it, as uh, Dietrich can explain more, as many of it has have to do with um, the fact that, for example, the, the cross-border payments are extremely expensive for many. Remittance corridors um, are uh, it not affordable when some people, ha- some uh, migrants or um, uh, workers, remittance uh, senders have to, you know, pro- give in fees or have to pay fees and other uh, kinds of um, uh, service fees on uh, on their cross-border payments. So it makes it very important that we actually address these issues and see how these stable coins or digital um, currencies, uh, the way um, also Tobias described it, can be used in reducing the cost of sending money, receiving money, and so on. And I think this will not just uh, uh, we 're not talking about Bitcoin now. this is not for speculative pur- purposes. This is using digital currencies for much needed um, uh, cross border payments and uh, and so on and many countries are also especially smaller countries which do not have the ability to build these um, uh, infrastructures on their own are looking at joining perhaps some regional platforms and uh, and systems so I think that 's also an opportunity for uh, for, many, uh, for many countries to be able to participate. And, and I think to the extent that we can deal with the risks and the risks are there, we have to be all, all cognizant. They include AML-CFT uh, related risks, they include cyber risks, they include financial capabilities and, and capacity to be able to use um, uh, such innovations. So to the extent that we are cognizant of those risks and can take measures, to address them. I think there is huge potential for uh, increasing uh, financial inclusion through digital payments. We see this in many countries um, who are actually far ahead of uh, many of the advanced economies, like uh, Kenya comes to mind. Um, Ghana is making a lot of progress in this area. Many Asian countries uh, have made uh, huge progress. So allowing much more efficient and uh, less costly payment systems. and. I do not agree that this would be contrary to financial inclusion, if anything, it should help it. But again, we need to really be cognizant of the opportunity, but the risks and mitigate those risks.
1: Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jayla. So let me move next. A question for you, Ross, is that with this pandemic situation and the increasing use of stable coins or fintech in payments. Do you think there's already a need to include these fintech related accounts into the deposit insurance arrangement? You know, we've discussed this before many times, and I'm, I'm glad I'm asking you the question and not being asked, having to answer this one.
5: It's a very difficult question to get you, but honestly, I think that it's premature to consider that. I think. Um, um, Deposit insurance serves a very specific purpose. That stablecoins, I think, have a broader purpose. I think we have to, we certainly have to put in place a more comprehensive and effective regulatory regime that guards against the risks of sta- that stablecoins may present, as really everyone has has, has commented on. But I think um, deposit insurance requires um, probably some more thought.
1: Thank you, Ross. So I have another question for you, uh, Dietrich. This is, I don't know if you've had the time to read the new proposal by Libra because the question is about that. It says, regarding the new proposal of Libra, will some of the requirements or the assessment of the FSB change because of COVID, because privacy concerns could not be the same? If you haven't had a chance to read this proposal uh, so far, which came out I think only yesterday, maybe you could respond to some of the other questions. i leave it to you.
4: Yeah, thank you, Akidia. Yeah, I had a quick look at, uh, at the revised uh, white paper and the, the cover letter. Um, I think um, uh, I would be reluctant to, to comment on any, any specific uh, stablecoin related proposals, pr- proposals that concern. Um, individual projects, um, including important ones. Um, I think uh, um, looking at at developments through the lens of of our work and our report, um, as I said before, I think one one important um, um, consideration for our work was to provide a broad framework in the the form of, of principles that is robust to um, evolving business models changing in uh, changes in in, in in the external environment and um, and um, well technological innovation right so um, I, I think um, that there are a couple of interesting interesting points in the in the in the revised uh, proposal uh, that that relate to to some of the principles i mean there 's a question about the composition of the of the reserve, and, uh, the question about uh, the, the, um, uh, that also was was alluded to about um, the the claim that uh, the, the holder of a stable coin actually actually has. So I think um, uh, I would see an, an interesting discussion uh, continuing going going forward. Um, I would leave it at, at, at that general level, if you, if you don't mind. And I would rather like to come back to a point that, that Sheila was talking about um, concerning um, f- the, the, the relationship between innovation and payments and, uh, and uh, financial inclusion. And I think the the, the really good news is that the, the the issue of um, enhancing efficiency in payments is, is is firmly on the on the policy on the policy agenda and um, uh, i think it is is important to um, consider a number of elements here not just one model for um, 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 enhancing uh, cross-border payments which could be a stable coin type solution say um, but there are also other other ways um, central bank digital currencies have been mentioned but also there are um, uh, probably opportunities uh, to to enhance to build on existing uh, cross-border payments arrangements and um, uh, I think this is the the idea behind um, the roadmap that we have been asked to develop for the for the G20 and that I mentioned mentioned earlier um, uh, not to provide if you like, one to identify a a a, um, a a roadmap for one specific solution, one single um, way to, to to more efficient payments, but if you like a, a roadmap, right? That charters the the territory, lays out what the issues are, and provides um, um, elements. Technical solutions, um, 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 legal solutions, regulatory solutions that can be used, that can be combined in a way that takes um, um, uh, individual economies, but also the the, 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 the international basis, the system as a whole, to um, new um, to new solutions. And I think um, a, a. combination or, if you like, competition between different approaches, um, I would see that as a a good thing.
1: Thank you. Uh, Thank you for that, Dietrich. That's very, very interesting. There have been other questions also on this issue of financial inclusion, financial stability and the nexus. Uh, But one question which I have is uh, now, uh, Tobias, uh, this is on uh, whether the linkage of stable coins to capital outflows. And the question, I think you addressed it a little bit in your remarks. But the question is, the stable coins entail financial risks, especially for emerging economies. Under certain macrofinancial contexts, the existence of a stable coin linked to a foreign currency, you raise the dollarization issue, might lead to a relatively more volatile demand for assets in the domestic currency, particularly banknotes and bank deposit. This would have some impact on monetary and financial stability. What do you think about this? When there are episodes of nominal and foreign account exchange tension, Will this provide an additional channel for capital outflows? And I think you've already responded to this in your, in, your, in, your, in, your, in your question. But if you have any additional view, you might want to say it. Let me throw another question at you, which will uh, which is uh, I think also broadly for one for the entire panel, which is what is your thinking once the fiscal and monetary stimulus, the unprecedented monetary and fiscal stimulus that has been uh, released, when, when, when that halts and the unwinding begins, Will the global financial system be more vulnerable? And in the post COVID-19 scenario, what kind of asset classes and institutions may become new sources of fragilities in the financial system? So if you could think about the second one for the panel as a whole to conclude the discussion, but meanwhile, if you had anything else to add on the first, first yeah. one.
2: Yeah, so let me start with the first one. So on the on the capital flows and uh, and, uh, and stable coins, so you know one interesting question to think about is uh, if a country imposes a capital flow measure like like a capital control how do you how do you deal with that uh, when they are stable coins and um, from what i understand uh, the the coin operators or those who are planning to be stable coin operators would impose those capital controls right um, so the stable coins are you know, are trying not to be a, a shadow, uh, you know, payment system, but are trying to be part of the regulated and uh, you know well-governed uh, financial system. So that would mean that uh, those capital controls and capital flow measures would have to be imposed uh, on the stablecoin uh, uh, as well, and so that would be done at the wallet uh, provider level. So basically, you know, wallet provider, you know, so, so the wallet providers would uh, basically limit. Uh, so say country X imposes some capital control, then the wallet provider would limit the outflow or, you know, whatever the, the measure is. It, 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 so imagine that country X, you know, limits to the extent to which uh, uh, currency can, or any capital can flow out, any, any payments can flow out. That would have to be imposed at the ballot level, and uh, there would have to be a governance and a legal framework around that, of course, in every single country. And so, um, you know, it's it's uh, it's certainly possible to do that. I mean, banks are subject to uh, to imposing those, uh, and um, um, you know, it's 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 certainly uh, desirable, right? I mean some of the crypto assets of course are completely outside of any of that right i mean and some stable coins uh, are attempting to be totally outside of any of this and um, you know they are trying to be in a total parallel world to the current uh, financial system so there's a, a, a deep philosophical divide between uh, uh, alternative uh, stablecoin providers and uh, you can imagine what regulators uh, are thinking about uh, those alternative approaches. Um, you know, another issue, of course, that hasn't come up yet are sanctions. I mean, some countries are sanctioned, and um, you know, uh, in principle, uh, stablecoin providers are also, you know, trying to to deal with that because, of course, if they are uh, transacted with uh, sanctioned com- uh, countries, they are going to be. Uh, subject to uh, to legal uh, uh, prosecution, etc. So, uh, you know, again, there's a there's a philosophical divide where some stablecoin providers say I want to be completely away from any of this, while others say I want to be compatible with the laws and rules and regulations of the international financial system. Um, so let me now move uh, to the second question, which is about this crisis and financial stability in this crisis. And so when you look at uh, yield curves or implied inflation, I mean, last year, we put out the global financial stability report that was called low, lower, uh, low for long. And uh, you know the theme this year is even lower for even longer. Right, I mean, yield curves are very low, very long, uh, all around the world. I mean, that doesn't mean, of course, some countries are subject to pretty big uh, credit spreads, uh, and they might not benefit as much from those uh, low and long rates. But um, the benchmark rates around the world, like the US dollar, the euro, the yen, uh, the Swiss franc, etc. I mean, they have very low, very long yield curves. And so uh, monetary policy is going to be in unconventional territory uh, for a long time. So, you know, humans are uh, uh, like to anchor uh, the future in the past. And so they always think that somehow normalization has to come. And I I I think that is one particular behavioral bias, right? I mean it's it's not clear at all that we will go back to uh, the kinds of level of interest rates that we have seen in the past any anytime soon. Uh and so that's gonna pre- present challenges uh for um uh for monetary policy. Now, moving to the financial stability part, of course, uh, reaching for yield is going to come back, and regulations are important. And I think, um, if anything, on the bank side, I think, uh, if anything, we might move to even more capital and more liquidity, because now we have seen, we might see a crisis that is even more severe than the 2008 crisis, right? I mean, in some sense, the post 2008 regulatory reforms were calibrated to a 2008 type event. We might see something worse. And so we might calibrate it to something even worse. That is one thing, and the same thing I just want to say on the market-based front, I mean, central banks, uh, including the Fed, the Bank of England, uh, uh, the ECB basically have felt compelled to backstop the entire market-based financial system. and. Um, you know that that is going to raise uh, regulatory questions as well. So let me stop here.
1: Thank you, and may I now turn to Chela and if you could also provide your views on when the waves recede, what will be left standing?
3: Okay, so <laughs> I I guess we don't know how big the wave will be, so it's it's, uh, it's a guess. I guess um, I. The, so there are two states of the world, right? We don't know how T plus one will look like. We don't know what will be behavioral changes in terms of consumption patterns, saving patterns. Um, how will the disrupted value chains will be mended? Will there be more protectionism? Um, potential output is uh, down, is how how com- uh, temporary this will be, and so on. So what? how we will come out of this is not yet clear as many of us said during this call it depends very much on how severe um, this uh, pandemic continues for and and, and the impact of, of the measures so I, But what is really clear is that um, there's no differentiation right now. Everyone is considered as risk and countries have turned inward. So it's very clear to me that those that come out of this crisis stronger by taking whatever structural reforms are possible. I know this is difficult to talk about at this um, uh, health emergency, but I think this is going to be as soon as countries can focus on that, it's going to be important Um, continuing to strengthen and bank resolutions, safety nets, and and also um, corporate bankruptcy frameworks. Because I think we we started this crisis. We have a book out, which is um, Global Waves of Debt, and the cover is like a tsunami. This was before the pandemic. This was published in December. And we are already at record level of sovereign and corporate um, uh, indebtedness. So it's it's obvious that we will have um, corporate insolvencies and hopefully it won't be systemic. But the more prepared we are to deal with these um, uh, potential failures, I think the better, out, the, the better off con- countries will be. So really looking at out-of-court settlement systems, all the types of measures we took after other crises where we face systemic bankruptcies, I think will be critical. Hopefully, they will end up being drawer plans but I am afraid for some countries, they won't be. So the more we can prepare, um, the, uh, the stronger countries will um, hopefully emerge from this um, uh, crisis.
1: Thank you, Tila. And may I ask Dietrich now for his views.
4: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Aditya. Three quick points on well, what, what will we be left standing. Um, first, um, role of buffers. I think we've, we've seen over the past uh, couple of weeks how important it is to have... Um, buffers available that can be used when they are needed. And um, uh, it's it's good that we are using the the flexibility that is provided by international standards in terms of uh, using buffers. Um, However, looking ahead at some point, in order to have buffers available down the road, they will have to be rebuilt and replenished. And uh, I think this is something to bear in mind that we need to look beyond Uh, at some point uh, beyond uh, the the, the current crisis, and also bear in mind uh, the the need to to, to, um, rebuild buffers. And I think this is also reflected in in, in our principles that um, uh, we are not going to to roll back um, with the policy responses on um, existing agreed regulation, uh, but we are using the flexibility um, that exists uh, in order to preserve financial stability going forward. Second point, quickly, on non-bank financial intermediation, because, uh, Tobias was, was referring to it. Um, the FSB Chair wrote in his letter to uh, to the G20 that um, the impact of COVID-19 on credit markets and investment fund has highlighted potential vulnerabilities in the increasingly important non-bank financial intermediation sector, and that it's um, important, um, more important than, than ever to, to, to understand. Um, uh, the risks and, and, and ensure that we can can reap the benefits of this this dynamic part of the of the financial system without um, creating risks for for financial stability and the FSB has formed a, a senior group of, of market regulators and microprudential policymakers to be also on that group um, to develop a proposal on how to organize work on this important area in the FSB going forward um, last point. Um, important to look ahead, not lose sight of the fact that there will be a world after COVID-19 and um, therefore it is important to continue on initiatives um, that can support and hopefully will support a, a strong recovery. And therefore I'm, I'm very grateful that we have this, this uh, focus on, on uh, innovation payment systems and stable coins. Um, there are other areas of work that need to continue um, harnessing the benefits of technology and innovation more generally. Um, assessing the effects of reforms is is important um promoting efficient and resilient cross border payment system we talked about and from an fsb perspective um last but not least also supporting um, a, a smooth transition um away from from libor remains an um, important issue
1: that's stop. thank you thank you dj ross the last word
5: thank you dj i'll be i'll be very brief i think um One thing that will be left standing will be a global financial and payments landscape that will continue to evolve and I think move towards greater digitization. And I think to ensure that this process is a force for good, it's critical that the public sector, particularly central banks, stand at its center uh, to ensure that the system that evolves is, is not only stable and efficient, but also inclusive. And this will involve, I think, central banks being directly involved in innovation, but also the public sector ensuring that regulation is in place that, that protects, um, protects the financial system and the people participating in it. And I think that regu- the nature of regulation may change in this context. I think Tobias just pointed to a fascinating example of, of capital controls where um, new types of service providers involved in digital payments will have to exercise some oversight over the purpose for which transfers of digital currencies and stable coins will be made. You know, historically in countries, this has been a very paper-based process involving banks and other types of traditional service providers. What will it look like in a digital world involving new types of service providers? I think we, this will involve a great deal, I think, of imagination, hard work and creativity on the part of the public sector, working with the private sector. I'll stop there.
1: Thank you, Ross, and I think you uh, you, uh, you very aptly summed up um, uh, the the uh, discussions. <clears throat> so I can just add very little to the wrap up. In a sense, what I think we all recognise and there's a consensus here that digital payments are front and centre in many ways of the COVID-19 response, as we have seen in the way the governments are reaching out to the the dip- with their various uh, means and methods of transfers and payments. And um, this could well determine the winners and losers. It's the point which you made, Ross, about what's left standing will be the payment, those which are very well integrated in the digital system. This could well determine the winners and losers in the new world. And it will be an urgent priority for everyone to catch up in a certain sense. And global stable coins, as we discussed, they provide a very useful means of addressing uh, these issues. But many risks, as pointed out by all of you, have still need to be addressed. And as was pointed out, there are deep philosophical design uh, differences which dictate design issues and application issues, which also have to be very well understood, else they may well end up causing the next distress in the financial sector. So with that, let me let me first quickly thank the Toronto Center for the excellent work that they have done in bringing this panel together. They do it every spring in annual meetings. We are very grateful to them for the live work that they do. Let me, let me also mention that this uh, proceedings are recorded and will be available for those of you who want to see it. Finally, there were some questions which I could not come to, some which are very important and interesting. And we will see if through Toronto Center, we can reach out and respond to some of those questions. But finally, and for everybody, please join me in a virtual applause for the fantastic panel that we have had today. Thank you.
2: Thanks very much, uh, Aditya, and thanks Toronto Center.
1: Thank you, thank you, everybody. Thank
2: Bye. you, thank everyone. You, thank, thank you, you very much. Bye-bye,
1: have a good day, thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye.